Greetings, juniors. It's Mr. Shovlin with you for your audio recording of Reading reading Aloud, page 33 through 41 of Absolute Relativism by Christophanic. Again, I'm referring to 33 through 41 as indicated on the pages of the PDF. If you're on looking on the left side of the PDF, this is pages 45 onward. Excuse me. All right. Was Jesus tolerant? If you believe he is who he claimed to be, then you'd agree that Jesus was the most tolerant man, excuse me, whoever lived. The all-powerful son of God allowed himself to be tortured and prayed for forgiveness for his executioners. He instructed his followers to do what he did to the point of serving, forgiving, and loving even our enemies, even loving our enemies, a seemingly impossible command, although it might seem easy to you until you have an enemy to love. There is simply no more radical form of tolerance or stricter command to love than this found in any other sacred text. But isn't the belief that all non-Christians go to hell the ultimate and final intolerance? Some Christian denominations believe this. Most do not. The Catholic Church, which comprises more than one billion of of the world's two billion Christians, does not teach that all people from other religions end up in hell. The official teaching of the church is that a person who doesn't know or hasn't been convinced about Jesus but has tried his best to follow God as he knows him. Note, I didn't write tried to his best to be nice. Hitler tried his tried nice tried was nice to people he loved. Can get into heaven through Jesus in a way that God only knows. This teaching is based on our knowledge that God is a God is fair and just, that he wants everyone in heaven and that he is able to work outside of the ordinary parameters that he set up for us to be saved. Belief in Jesus followed by baptism in a Christian life. Even though not all Christians believe you have to be registered in a church to enter heaven, they still feel obliged to tell the world about Jesus. Christians evangelize because they claim to know the ordinary and surest way that God has revealed for someone to arrive safely in heaven. Because he commanded his followers to do so, evangelization is not an optional part of Christianity, and most of all, because some news is just too good to keep to oneself. Non-Christians, if you truly believe that God loved us enough to become one of us and that his resurrection is a proof for our pending eternal bliss, wouldn't you tell everyone you could too? Seen in this light, the invitation of Christians should not be misconstrued as coercion. In the words of Pope John Paul II, the church proposes she imposes nothing. It sure seems like an imposition sometimes. Sometimes conscience might feel like it's imposing on us when we hear a moral or religious population proposition. Excuse me. If you want to silence that voice, you're free to try, but please don't silence me. I'm just proposing. Let's move on. What does motivate authentic tolerance? The modern world thinks that relativism is the key to tolerance. That is, if we abandon the thought that some ideas are right and others are wrong, then we can all get along. But I already showed that relativism can produce the polar opposite of tolerance because it removes objective reasons for people to practice self-restraint against those they disagree with. In addition, this relativism is not the cure for intolerance because it will simply never be accepted by absolutists who are intolerant. Trying to s- Try setting up an inclusivity workshop in the mountains of Afghanistan to convince members of the Taliban that there's really no difference among Christians Christian, Jewish, or Islamic beliefs. You won't get very far, no matter how multicolor, how much multicolored yarn you bring to illustrate your point. 
So what can you, what can cure intolerance? I argue that the most intolerant person is a realist. That is someone who recognizes that there are objective religious and ethical facts who recognizes that intolerance is wrong. The Second Vatican Council taught very clearly about tolerance. We cannot call, truly call on God, the Father of all, if we refuse to treat in a brotherly way any man or woman created as he is in the image of God. Man's relation to God the Father and his relation to men, his brothers, are so linked together that Scripture says, He who does not love does not know God. The church reproves, as foreign to the mind of Christ, any discrimination against men or harassment of them because of their race, color, condition of life, or religion. Such a clear teaching that intolerance is a moral evil should come from religious leaders of every faith. This message also needs to come from secular activists whose followers, when they gain enough power, tend to suppress those with whom they disagree. For instance, some of the more radical pro-gray marriage activists would like to like the religion to force religious organizations excuse me, would like the government to force religious organizations to change their teaching and practice on sexual ethics to support gay marriage or adoption, or else risk lawsuits or the loss of tax-exempt status for, quote, haste speech. This activism, this goes beyond activism to coercion and intolerance. So we've pointed out how relativism leads to tenuous tolerance at best, and how only belief in objective truth has the potential to guarantee real and lasting tolerance. However, we've removed enough of your fears about realism to make you comfortable digging into our next discussion. How you can know the answers to the most important questions with certainty. Questions about faith, morals, and the meaning of life. Why do we need certainty about the matters of faith and morals? The more important something is, the more certainty we need to have about it. For, in, for example, if monosodium glutinate bothers your stomach, it would be a good idea to check and see, check with the waiter at a Chinese restaurant to see if there is any in what you are about to order. So let's raise the stakes. If you are allergic to MSG, it would probably send you into anaphylactic shock. You would probably want to see the ingredients before your yourself before eating, you'd want a high degree of surety if the meal could cure, could kill you. The stakes are high when it comes to the meaning of life, faith, and how we should live it, morals. Such things cut to the very heart of the purpose of our existence and how we should live it out. Only a high degree of surety about these things can give us the confidence we need to face life with a firm sense of purpose and, excuse me, with a firm sense of purpose and death with hope. But with all the various views about God and how we should live, how can anyone claim to know the truth? Many people stop at that question as if the multitude of arguments and viewpoints excuses us from the responsibility of finding the correct answers. When it comes to the most profound and important questions about the meaning of life, you had better look into the evidence and find solid answers, or you might be missing the purpose of your existence. Answers can be found to questions of faith and morals. Even though the answers can't be verified scientifically, they can be verified logically. <clears throat> I'm a scientist. When I talk about truth, I'm talking about science. You're talking about philosophy and religion. <clears throat> we're speaking on two totally different planes. We can't even debate. Truth means the same thing no matter what we're talking about, as we've stated above. Truth is being in accord with fact or reality. 
Whether we're talking about biology or philosophy, we find truth by observing data and making logical conclusions about it. If it's physical data, you call your observations and conclusions physics. If it has to do with numbers, you call it math. If you're observing moral experiences, you call it ethics. If it's information about God, you call it theology. But in each case, your brain is working through data to make conclusions and find truth. Is there a difference between data you put under a microscope and data of a more purely philosophical nature? Sure there is, but that doesn't make one science more reliable than the other. Concepts can be just as reliable as the stuff in your Petri dish. For instance, you probably never... Excuse me, you'll probably never be able to verify physically the hun- what that 100 trillion plus 100 trillion equals 20 trillion, sorry, 10 trillion plus 10 trillion equals 20 trillion. You'd need a huge counting board for that. But you know conceptually that the answer is true. Likewise, great minds throughout history from Aristotle, ancient Greek philosopher, to Fred Hoyle, 20th century astronomer and ex-atheist, to Thomas Aquinas, medieval theologian, have deduced from what we can physically observe and philosophically that there is an unmoved mover or a super intellect or a god that we cannot see. When it comes to ethics, one way we can make strong arguments is by reasoning through the data of moral experiences. We can know that some choices are noble and good because almost everyone perceives them that way. We can know that some things are wrong because people universally recoil at them. For instance, it's safe to say that murder is wrong because human beings almost universally know it is by intuition. <clears throat> it does seem a little subje- does it seem a little subjective to make a moral judgments based on our collective human experience? Maybe, but there's no more subjective than saying that we need to know we know an apple is red because nearly everyone sees the red when we look at it. Of course, someone is colorblind when they see green and his perception is wrong. And someone who is brainwashed might think that murder is acceptable, but he too is wrong. So my question for the scientists who think that only material data can be seen as evidence is this. Why do you accept data and make conclusions about the physical world, but not about the more important things like who God is or how you should live? Why limit your discoveries about the universe to the reality inside of Petri dish? You study the matter of the universe, but you're missing the meaning. I guess I'm skept- I'm just skeptical of things that can't be verified scientifically. When someone thinks that we can never know anything about the spiritual nature with surety, we call that person a skeptic. Some skeptics Some are skeptics because they refuse to recognize anything immaterial as evidence for truth. For many people, skepticism is far more than an intellectual stance. It's a rejection of a claim, even if there's enough evidence to support it. Such skepticism is an unnatural posture to take toward people or concepts and is more a sign of a wounded spirit than of genius. After years in youth ministry, I've found that all the logical answers in the world cannot help a person believe if he has a hard time trusting his own dad, for example. Sometimes confronting such foundational trust issues can help someone break out of skepticism. (coughs) It just seems you're so so close-minded to say you're right and everyone else is wrong. Close-minded is merely a negative way of saying convinced. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. It's a good thing to close your mind once you have find something worth closing it on. So you Christians think that the rest of the world is flat out wrong? To the claim that 
<clears throat> excuse me, the claim to be 100% right about God is not the same as saying that everyone else is 100% wrong. The Catholic Church claims to have the fullness of the truth about God, but it does not claim that every other faith is entirely wrong. Regarding the truth and nobility of other religions, the Church officially teaches the following. The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in other religions. <clears throat> she regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life, those precepts and teachings which, though different, differing in many aspects from the ones she holds and sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of truth which enlightens all men. And since there are truths to be found in other faiths, the church recognizes that they can lead people to God and help them to encounter him in various ways. It is also common today to find religious leaders in dialogue and working together for the common good whenever possible. Pope Benedict XVI recently encouraged interreligious dialogue that would enable different religions to come to know one another better and to respect one another in order to work for the fulfillment of man's noblest aspirations in search of God and in search of happiness. In some ways, all people of faith are on the same team, running the same race toward the same God. Our posture as Christians should never be over them because of our claim to know the truth, but rather walking toward God with them. This certainly seems to be Saint, or sorry, Pope Benedict XVI's attitude. <clears throat> with, but this respect for other faiths isn't the same as religious indifferentism. In the same speech, Pope Benedict the 16th continued, Indeed, the church proclaims and must ever proclaim Christ the way, the truth, and the life, in whom men find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. The religions of the world are the story of our search for God, which arises from our nature as religious creatures made by God and for God. Christians claim to know the story of God's search for man to the point where he becomes one of us and tells us to our faces who he is, and in so doing, reveals who we are. While other faiths provide glimpses of God, Jesus reveals the, the whole picture. In short, the Christian's claim to be 100% right about God should not be equated with the claim that everyone else is 100% wrong, and it certainly shouldn't be confused with the disrespect for other people. Saying someone is wrong is not the same as saying he is unholy, nor is theological correctness the same as holiness. The devil, for instance, is an expert in theology.